I'll get the vaccine. You f leave me alone. Yeah, battle royale. This is the December 2021 edition of the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. Just a few things to keep in mind. First of all, we've had a very successful fellowship application match throughout all the fellowship programs, and I believe that it worked pretty well, and hopefully none of the candidates were stressed, as in past years when candidates were expecting calls from several programs, but were unsure what to do if let's say the second rated program called before the first rated program for the candidate to accept a position. Well, at any rate, it went smoothly, and this probably is going to be the way the fellowship match will work in the future. The WMS, thankfully, was instrumental in hosting this process. Secondly, the next few podcasts may not seem quite as polished as you're used to or possibly as long, and that's because I'm on a sabbatical and I'm trying to stick to my project, which is incorporating virtual or augmented reality into wilderness medicine. It's a big secret, but if things work out, you'll hear about it. So we have two topics today. One is an interview I did with Dr. Benjamin Ho, where we discussed the Wilderness Medical Society clinical practice guidelines for tick bites. Yes, tick bites. He thought, or you thought, or we all thought that we are going to talk about snow science. No, 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 no. Well, I just realized that there isn't a lot of snow in Tennessee at this point in time. And you know what? It's a good follow-up from an interview we did a year ago on ticks. Isn't it nice to jog that memory a little bit? Then I'm going to do a little soap boxing. I'm going to discuss why wilderness medicine is extinct. Scary title for scary people, huh? Well, generating controversy is really a good thing because it makes you grow in your thinking. Other than that, we'll see you at the WMS 2022 Winter Conference. However, I'm going to be virtual because I'm really trying to stay focused in learning computer programming. Hopefully, the ski season in Taos here in New Mexico will be good. If not, well, I suppose I'm going to have to make a virtual reality skiing game. So enough of that. Let's go. All right. Thank MacGyver. Thank. 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 Well, hello. Yep, it is December. Not quite winter, but some places have already had snow. So why discuss tick-borne illness? In fact... We've already discussed the subject of ticks with Dr. Jim Diaz a year ago on this podcast where we discussed emerging tick-borne infections and what wilderness medicine providers needed to know. There, at that time, was a new tick vector from China that we learned about that transmits potentially fatal illnesses such as encephalitis and severe fever with rhombocytopenia thanks to this funny-named Hemophysalis longicornis, a.k.a. the Asian longhorn tick. Yeah. Plus, you know, it was pointed out that the United States lags far behind in tick vaccines compared to places such as Scandinavia, Eastern Europe, Russia, and yes, China. The main focus in the U.S. is currently more on the prevention side, using repellents and repellent impregnated clothing. There was also a discussion about tick checks to look for the slower feeding exotic ticks that transmit Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, babesiosis, and ehrlichosis. However, we have in the December 2021 journal an article called the Wilderness Medical Society Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Prevention and Management of Tick-Borne Illness in the United States. And this is a paper put together by some experts on the subject. And with me is Dr. Benjamin Ho, first author of the Clinical Practice Guidelines. It's great to have you, Ben, on the podcast. 
Yeah, thanks, Daryl. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So where are you currently now? What's your practice like? Well, I'm a, an emergency physician, like many of the listeners. Um, I am a community emergency physician. So currently I'm working in um, southern Wisconsin, Lake Wisconsin. I just finished up the shift wearing my scrubs right now. I am also a flight physician, so I pull some hours with the UW Med Flight Service. Um, and uh, those are kind of my main gigs. So uh, like a lot of the listeners, I spend my time working in the emergency department, trying to move the numerous departments and uh, so on and so forth. And what got you interested in this particular subject? <laughs> well, it might be the locations. I grew up in the upper Midwest, spent most of my adult life in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and this is uh, prime Lyme country. So since medical school, um, there, there's always highlights on tick-borne illnesses um, in the upper Midwest and the Great Lakes area. So. Well, there's nothing like experience to kind of make you think about certain things and become interested in it. So, you know, first of all, I was looking at this article. It's amazing that 95% of U.S. human vector-borne diseases reported to the CDC are from tick-borne pathogens, and that tick-borne illnesses have doubled over the past two decades. I mean, that's incredible. But how many cases have been reported currently compared to the two past decades. Do you have any info on that? And if you do, great. And does the 95% take into account dengue and the West Nile virus or the Zika, for example? Yeah, so that data point was from uh, a group of CDC authors uh, published in 2017, the 95%. I think if you look at more recent publications, uh, you know, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report recently published on uh, vector-borne illnesses in general a couple of years ago, and the number they use is greater than 75%. In general, I think the thing we all have to remember is a lot of these illnesses will be underreported. I mean, I will be the first to admit I probably missed plenty of cases that I failed to report to the CDC. So these numbers are imprecise, but they're kind of the best data and a good source is the CDC's Notifiable Infectious Disease Database. Um, and according to their information, the number of U.S. tick-borne illnesses reported, and that's the kind of main point here, reported tick-borne illnesses in 2019, 50,865 um, versus 2004, 22,527. Hmm. So near doubling that time. So there's some scary illnesses mentioned that can be transmitted by these ticks. Many of us might be familiar with Lyme disease, but briefly, could you discuss, Ben, some of the illnesses that ticks can transmit? Yeah, I guess brief is, is kind of the operative word here, so I'll try to be brief. In reality, this is a complex topic, and I'm sure it's going to bring up PTSD and many listeners here from medical school and all the memorization that we had to do. And it's complex, right? There's different pathogens that cause certain diseases. These pathogens are carried by different ticks. The ticks have different geographical distributions. So it's, it's very complex. Um, so we'll try to be brief. But like you said, we started with Lyme disease. I'm calling here from Wisconsin. So why don't we start with Ixodes scapularis? This is a black-legged tick. Uh, it typically has a range of the upper Midwest, Great Lakes region, and the, the Northeast. So we can think of a number of pathogens that Ixodes scapularis can transmit. So the first you already mentioned, Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the um, causative spirochetes uh, for Lyme disease. I 
think many of us will be familiar if we haven't seen it in person clinically through um, kind of all the readings that we have to do throughout our career. This is the disease that presents in both an early localized form and a disseminated late form. The early localized form is that uh, erythema migrans that we all read the textbooks and it's that bullseye rash. But later presentations can involve rheumatological, neurological, or cardiac manifestations like uh, high-grade AV node blocks, uh, Bell's palsy, meningitis, etc. But Lyme disease isn't the only infection that Exodes scapularis can transmit. We have to think about anaplasmosis caused by anaplasma uh, phagocytophyllum. We have to think about babesiosis caused by the parasite Babesia microti. Uh, we have to think about, in some cases, ehrlichiosis. Now, Exodes scapularis isn't the most common vector for ehrlichiosis, but it's possible. The organism carried by Exodes scapularis is Ehrlichia neuris oclariensis. I wouldn't want to name my child that, so <laughs> exactly. it's great. And then, and then finally, some other kind of uh, less well-known uh, illnesses like relapsing fever, um, another spirochial disease, and Poisson virus, which is a, a viral vector. Now, we have to remember that a lot of these diseases aren't solely transmitted by Exodes scapularis. So that the easiest jump to make is to think about Exodes pacificus. So this is a Western black-legged tick related to the black-legged tick itself. Uh, and this tick can carry Lyme, anaplasmosis, and relapsing fever as well. When we think about ehrlichiosis, that can that's transmitted by Embryota americanum. Different uh, organisms, Ehrlichia chaffinsis and Ehrlichia eringii, um, which uh, are related to Amblyoma americanum. So we're all sure. probably familiar with Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Mm -hmm. um, the causative organism there is Rickettsia rickettsii, uh, most commonly vectored by the tick Dermacentaur variabilis. This is the American dog tick. But of course, why make it simple? Mm. Other ticks can carry Rocky Mountain spotted fever as well, Dermacenter andersoni, and Rhipocephalus sanguinistus. So it's complex. And then if you want to really cap it off, we all think about tularemia as well, Francisella tularensis, um, which also has a number of its own vectors. And we've mentioned some of these already. Um, the Lone Star tick, I'm just going to make it easy by using their common names, the American dog tick, and the Rocky Mountain wood tick as well. And of course, all these diseases have their own presentations as well. And I think we have already talked about Lyme disease, starting with erythema migrans, but then possibly progressing to some of these neurological, cardiac, rheumatological presentations later uh, in its time course. Rocky Mountain spotted fever, we always think about that petechial rash, um, which may uh, develop into a, a maculopapular rash on the hands and feet that may progress to a petechial rash. And this can be a very rapid progression and herald very serious disease. Uh, and then tularemia, we always think about the illnesses that occur with the inoculation sites, the actual bacterium, um, also glandular, oculoglandular, oropharyngeal, mnemonic, and typhoidal. So it can be pretty complex. And then add on to this, the other emerging diseases, uh, you know, the example is alpha-gal syndrome, um, which is caused by a regurgitation of molecules from um, the lone star tick or the black-legged tick, uh, which can cause hypersensitivity to red meats and to dairy products. Um, so it becomes very complex, and uh, you really need to have a, a kind of a good understanding of where you are geographically um, and what pathogens are hanging out in your neighborhood uh, to really get a grasp of this. So I'm going to add lib here. In the emergency medicine boards, they seem to always mention Rocky Mountain spotted fever and whatnot. And from a 
dermatological viewpoint, and there's some dermatologists that are listening to this. It doesn't sound like it always, but it can affect the palms and the soles of the feet. There aren't very many uh, disease processes that do, but that's one of them. Are you aware of that or have you heard of that or seen that in your experience? Yeah, I've uh, not seen Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever myself. Geographically, this is much more of a kind of a south, southeastern, kind of south central type illness, but that is kind of the classic teaching uh, macular papular rash on the palms or soles, and not very many other things cause that presentation. You know, some other things we might think about are syphilis or hand, foot, and mouth, but that is that's type that's the type of board recall information that's all kind of seared into our brains. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like this particular rash is something to be messed with it. According to the article, there's some possibility of fatality. So that doesn't sound good. So that's a good thing to recognize. Yeah. Rocky Mountain spotted fever can is one of these more fatal illnesses and can be rapidly turned south. If you live in some of these endemic regions for some of these illnesses, it's good to have an understanding of how they present. So you can have that clinical suspicion um, when that odd rash or that bullseye rash or that, uh, you know, maculopapular rash on the hands pops into your clinical setting. You know, I like the way you've mentioned some of these other entities, such as the Colorado tick fever, the Powassan virus, which is something that we actually talked about in our last podcast a year ago. And there's this alpha-gal syndrome, which is basically something very strange that I hadn't really heard of Galgadot, Gadot, Galgadot. So who's Galgadot? Galgadot. Till last year, where this tick regurgitates a sugar molecule, alpha gal, into its human host. And sometimes this alpha gal molecule can induce a hypersensitivity to meat. So some people can get uh, some sort of a weird meat hypersensitive hypersensitivity. Let's see, I can speak that too. That uh, can lead to a bunch of potential allergic reactions, hives, anaphylaxis, which sounds crazy. And this could happen in minutes. So that's kind of a crazy thing. And I'm glad you guys mentioned that as all as well, because we didn't get as much into the pathophysiology of the alpha-gal syndrome, but it's probably going to be on somebody's board test someday in the future. So (laughs) well, let's uh, jump on to prevention. What are some of the best modalities to prevent an unwanted tick latching on and making a generous blood donor sick is picaridin just as effective as D. And here's an interesting question I had for you. What if I had permethrin? I didn't have D. I didn't have picaridin. I put the permethrin on my clothing. Everything's glorious. I let it dry. Why can't I put it on my skin? Well, I think some of us are familiar with uh, permethrin in other treatments for scabies and lice and things like that. And it is applied, but in the context of tick prevention, it's used as a ingredient that you add to clothing. Um, so, so the difference here is permethrin is an insecticide. It's uh, lethal to insects. I think it's like a neurotoxic to them. And when insects land on permethrin treated clothing, they essentially stop moving. It doesn't repel the insects. Um, it doesn't make them not get close. But when they get close, they just stop and they become ineffective insects, as you would. Deet and picaridin are repellents. So they will 
they'll be noxious or uncomfortable to the insects and they would not want to approach. The differences here that are, are essentially familiarity. DEET's been around for a long time. It's thought to be pretty safe. There might be some downsides and that can be corrosive to certain synthetic materials like Vortex. The Cardin is newer. Perhaps there's less background, less familiarity with the Cardin, uh, but it is orderless. Um, it's thought to be less toxic and it's less harmful to synthetic fibers. So people kind of choose their favorite flavor. Personally, I'm old school. I use DEETS and I also treat my clothing with permethrin. There's not been a whole lot of great comparison studies between all of these repellents. Nothing really head-to-head. -head. The literature is very heterogeneous. But at the end of the day, if the risk of using these products is low uh, and you gain some in tick repellency, um, then it's thought to be a, a good thing as far as tick disease prevention. Um, and so the combination of beets on the skin plus permethrin on the clothing is thought to be um, one of the cornerstones of, of tick-borne illness prevention. The other thing is this time-honored tick check with some sort of different effects as far as efficacy. We don't know. <coughs> it doesn't seem like the tick check is that effective, but is it effective? Is it effective with a shower? What is the preferred method to remove a tick? And is there a certain time to remove that tick before you get sick? Yeah, so the tick check, you know, we all hear about it. I never did it as a kid, but I find as an adult, as I get older and I become more risk adverse, I'm doing it all the time, right? And, yeah. You know, maybe my wife thinks I'm crazy just by like, you know, spending all this time in front of the mirror looking on my armpits. Um, <laughs> but uh, we got conflicting background on the tick check. Um, there was one, there, you know, two kind of conflicting case control studies, both done in Lyme endemic regions, specifically in Connecticut, that looked at patients, you know, with possible exposure to Lyme disease or erythema migraines, comparing case patients with control patients who don't, who haven't expressed the illness, um, and and going back and interviewing their tick prevention behaviors. One study showed that case patients were less likely to, to do, do the tick check. Um, another one found that they were more likely to perform the tick check and bathe within two hours. So the evidence is kind of contradictory. At the end of the day, you'll probably find the flavor of this clinical practice guideline is even though we don't have good evidence, these behaviors really don't cost anything. And if they help, there's little risk in doing it. So we are advocating for tick checks as well, even though the evidence isn't really high quality. Your other question was about the timing of removal of ticks. And you'll hear some hours and times they're thrown out there. A lot of the early studies were done on animals where they took ticks and they put them on animals and they tested the animals afterwards and they saw who got, how many animals got infected after how much time the tick was on. And, and this largely is where like the 36 hour kind of grace period comes. A lot of the animal studies found that kind of low likelihood of Lyme transmission if a tick is attached for less than 36 hours. But beyond that point, then kind of the risk increases. The 70, there's a 72 hour timestamp that many listeners will probably hear. Um, once we got into ant, uh, human studies, I'm sorry, as we were studying kind of single dose doxycycline, it was found that the, the risk of Lyme disease transmission significantly increases after 72 hours in human studies. So there's not a great answer. There's no such thing as no risk. There is low risk, but no such thing as no risk, right? So a lot of the kind of national guidelines from the 
IDSA, for example, recommend removal of a tick within 36 hours is likely low risk for transmitting disease. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. And well, I'm outside. I'm a survivalist. I'm a self-proclaimed survivalist. Yeehaw! And I'm surviving in the woods for a few days somewhere in, say, yeah, Tennessee. I took my tweezers later on to remove this nice, fat, bluish tick from my lower leg while washing all that dirt and grime off at home. I had no idea that that tick was there. I have no idea what tick species it was. What would be the indications for just simply taking a single dose of 200 milligrams of doxycycline? And if I can't identify that tick, why not just take the doxy instead of watching and waiting for three to four weeks? What do you think about that? Yeah, the guidelines are pretty clear, um, not only from the guidelines we wrote, but from the Infectious Disease Society of America. And the, the recommendations for giving that single dose of doxycycline has pretty strict parameters. Per the guidelines, you have to be able to confidently identify the tick as Ixodes scapularis. The tick has to be attached for longer than 36 hours. So that's kind of that time frame that we said uh, less than 36 hours, probably low risk, but more than 36 hours, the risk increases for Lyme transmission. You can start the antibiotic prophylaxis within 72 hours of tick removal. So that's kind of like that upper bookmark that we discussed. And you're in a Lyme endemic region. So prophylactic antibiotics aren't really a thing for non-Lyme exposures. And for the Lyme exposure, it has to be kind of within these really strict parameters. So the the cool scenario that you painted there of the survivalists in Tennessee and there's that tick that really doesn't meet the criteria for a single dose doxycycline. Now, guidelines are guidelines, right? They're there to guide your decision-making. And we as authors felt that we were compelled to stick with the evidence and advocate for antibiotic stewardship. I will fully admit that in my Lyme endemic region, some of these, you know, the timestamps and the ID have been kind of hazy. And have I gives, given someone 200 milligrams of doxycycline once for kind of a, a soft call? Yeah, I, I'm, I will perfectly admit that I've done that. But the, the guidelines are clear in that the, the indications for that single dose of 200 milligram doxycycline are pretty strict. Well, and then there's some discussion a little later on about evacuation decisions and an idea some guidance about who would actually receive the actual treatment, much like we're alluding to. But could you then briefly discuss the efficacy of vaccines and why we do not really have vaccines here in the United States, at least that's readily available? So, so I think there was at one point, and in fact, there are two studies, kind of in the late 90s, that studied Lyme disease vaccine and their efficacy. And the efficacy after three injections was actually pretty good. In one of those studies, it was about 92% preventing Lyme disease um, with uh, kind of low risk of adverse effects. For some reason, the vaccine didn't stick around very long in the American market. Your guess is probably as good as mine. I think we're learning in the COVID era how hesitant some people can be towards certain vaccines, <laughs> for better or for worse. But you know, if you imagine this is kind of a small population, you know, people who have perhaps occupational exposure to ticks, perhaps they work outside, small relevant population, there's always the consideration of side effects, uh, you know, and is, is this something that's worth or financially worth it for the companies to keep producing um, for the indication? 
personally, I'm a big fan of vaccines. If I could take it, great, and be confident that I have 92% efficacy against Lyme disease. Uh, but the reality is it's not available anymore. So we did address this in the clinical practice guideline, but had to necessary, it was necessary for us to kind of address the reality of the vaccine availability, or more specifically, inability of the vaccine in the United States in our, in our work. When you talk about some of the complications, I think a lot of our listeners would definitely be into the vaccine if they're in a high risk situation, because like a lot of vaccines, we kind of try to weigh the potential of getting some sort of an illness. And we also look at the side effects of a vaccine versus the side effects of getting the disease. And it doesn't sound like Lyme disease or any of these other diseases are such a wonderful thing to have. So yeah, that's definitely an interesting topic that maybe we'll hopefully get some comments from people for and against vaccines in general. So thanks for bringing that up. Here's the deal, guys. I'll get the vaccine. You f- Leave me alone. Yeah, battle royale. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. Do you have any other points you might want to bring up, Ben? In general, I hope the uh, guideline is informative and uh, a good read and generates a lot of chatter. Again, I think we mentioned this a number of times in our conversation. There's not a whole lot of great evidence to support a lot of these behaviors. And I, we tried to be true to that and how we were grading. I think the readers will discover there's a lot of strong recommendations, but not a lot of high quality support for those recommendations. And it's our thought is that the risks of a lot of these behaviors, like wearing appropriate clothing, using repellents, um, doing a tech check, like we did, had just discussed, are low enough risk where it's worth it. You know, it's for the prevention of tick-borne illnesses that are causing a lot of problems in today's society and the numbers are increasing and everything, why not? The, the evidence is not great, but the risk of doing the, the behaviors is pretty low. So um, that's kind of like the general message of the clinical practice happening. Excellent. Well, definitely thanks for your time and we'll call it a day. All right. Thanks a lot, Daryl. Thanks a lot for having me. Wilderness medicine is extinct. We might appropriately call this the soapbox section of the podcast. Maybe this is going to be a new part of the podcast. I don't know. Well, I'm warning you, this is likely to be an incendiary subject that's going to trigger some of you folks. It's going to involve politics, myths, and religion. Oh, well, not quite that serious, but it could affect you, the listener. So, lend me your ears. Now, being that wilderness medicine is extinct, yeah, that's probably a bit of an audacious title for this discussion, but many of you are either starting out in wilderness medicine, or you've been involved for years. And you have to think about this. Where is wilderness medicine going? So like everything, one guarantee is true. Change is inevitable. We've seen this on a worldwide scale lately, and old patterns are constantly being challenged. I could also title this discussion, hey, did I call you a doctor? Or should I call you a captain? Well, what do you mean captain? Well, not captain in the military sense, but perhaps as a title used in many fire departments or EMS organizations. Hopefully you're getting an idea where I'm going. You might be a physician. You might be an advanced practice clinician, a PA, nurse practitioner, a nurse, paramedic, educator, guide, an athlete, or another type of stakeholder in wilderness medicine. Now, I don't know about you, but the word stakeholder to me sounds so corporate. Or I often envision a person holding a bunch of porterhouse, T-bone, and chuck steaks. I think Lady Gaga would qualify quite well wearing a meat dress. Well, at any rate, years ago, 
wilderness medicine was considered an oddity by the mainstream house of medicine. Now, wilderness medicine has continued to be so cool, so gauche, but I have to give thanks, first of all, to dear friend Paul Auerbach, who many of you know over the years has fought that fight and was really able to bring wilderness medicine into the forefront. He was not only a force majeure in the United States, but yes, as I've alluded to, he was able to initiate and help develop many programs in Europe and Asia, where he's made such an impact in places such as Nepal, for instance. Of course, he was one of the figureheads that started the WMS. He was successful in putting wilderness medicine formally in print with two large tomes, volumes of wilderness medicine that we all know and love. He not only served as an amazing model for those of us aspiring to do wilderness medicine worldwide, but was an extremely dedicated family man. But will he recognize this growing discipline or subspecialty 10 years from now? Well, many of you might state that in some way you are a wilderness medicine practitioner. Don't use that word stakeholder, please, especially for vegan. In 10 years, what will qualify you to be acknowledged as a wilderness medicine practitioner, you might ask? Hmm. An expert in wilderness medicine? What does that mean? Does that mean being a fellow of the Academy of Wilderness Medicine? Or does it mean becoming a master fellow, an MFOM? Maybe it means having a diploma in mountain medicine or a diploma in diving and marine medicine behind your name. Maybe it means to have successfully completed a fellowship in wilderness medicine. Or maybe it means being known as an expedition doc. Or will it be being board certified in the relatively new emergency medicine subspecialty of EMS, emergency medical services? Ooh, well, some of the concerns I've had over the past few years is that there is the possibility that the subspecialty of EMS within emergency medicine might potentially absorb wilderness medicine within its own ranks, within its own subspecialty. Now, I was hoping to get the editor of the excellent book entitled Wilderness EMS by Dr. Seth Hawkins. He's the editor, but we were unable to reach. But by proxy, I'm going to just interview myself since I'm a contributor to this fine book. And by the way, go buy the book, read it. The book nicely covers some of the pros and cons of EMS in the wilderness, and there's some really nice tips by several authors on subject relevant to wilderness EMS. So, the idea of EMS and wilderness medicine seem somewhat diametrically opposite. Now, on one hand, you have wilderness medicine, which arguably has roots dating back centuries, and it's come to the forefront in the United States thanks to more recent academic adventure researchers such as Houston, West, Hackett, Paul Auerbach, as I've mentioned, and so many others that I haven't mentioned. And over the years, it hasn't really been that well regulated. Not to say that it's disorganized, because of course we have the Wilderness Medical Society here in the U.S. and in Europe. There's the International Commission for Alpine Rescue, which we are members of, the WMS. And there's also the International Society for Mountain Medicine. And the interest in wilderness and austere medicine seems to have exponentially grown even over the past 10 years. Now, there's this other discipline, subspecialty, under emergency medicine known as EMS, which is likely one of the most, if not the most, regulated of subspecialties around. Now, it's come a long way from the old days throwing a patient found injured on the street in the back of a hearse back in the 60s to what it has become now. 
And now in the U.S., we've caught up. We have physicians going on calls with the EMS crew, which is something that's been standard in Europe for several years and in other parts of the world. But yeah, happily, it's catching on here. In other words, it is wonderful to have a medical director go on a call. And with that, we have a one-year boarded subspecialty in EMS within the ranks of emergency medicine. Now, the new EMS physician is not simply looking at quality improvement reports and reviewing calls and updating protocols, although that or those things are important. But now we have physicians adopting a hands-on approach. And I'd venture to say, based on even my own experience, that many paramedics actually really enjoy this. They like having physicians giving them feedback, as long as the physician is relatively nice and all that. This is not simply an urban stay-and-play phenomenon. No, we have a burgeoning new field called wilderness EMS. And the whole idea is to incorporate the strengths of both. And look, I'm not entirely opposed to a cooperative agreement between the two disciplines, wilderness medicine and EMS. Yeah, they bring great strengths to the table. They also have some inherent weaknesses. And in some ways, EMS could serve to potentially professionalize, if you could use that in quotes, the discipline of wilderness medicine activities because of the EMS's rigorous structure. Now, wilderness medicine in and of itself is one of those subspecialties where yeah, the incidence of pathology is low, low, low versus EMS where there's a lot of pathology. But in wilderness medicine, although the incidence of occurrences are low, they could be really consequential. And it occurs in very remote, austere environments. Clinical wilderness medicine is somewhat infrequent, therefore. And what this means as the majority of wilderness medicine for a lot of us might mean mostly educational opportunities or research. Now, I won't get into the research because I think, yes, that is important and we have a lot to grow in. But over the years, with regard to education, wilderness medicine has had competing organizations within a structure, a structure, kind of a loose structure. The structure is mostly these educational groups vying with one another to tout their credentials as being the best wilderness medicine curriculum in existence. And you know a lot of those hyperboles, folks, I have to tell you, that is problematic, but that's kind of the way things work. Now, this is especially this whole idea of being the best wilderness medicine curriculum in existence. It's targeted towards pre-hospital providers. And of course, obtaining a wilderness first responder or wilderness EMT certificate could mean that an EMS provider, not a physician, but an EMS provider who wants to be in the outdoors could mean landing a guiding job, becoming a guide. But Curriculum and hours for becoming a wilderness first responder, wilderness EMT, and the like can vary. Especially in the age of COVID, there are some recertification programs that actually offer online-only courses. Now, we don't have any literature that supports any technique or amount of hours over another. But my personal feeling is that, well, an online-only course, there's going to be some limitations. But what do you do during a pandemic? I suppose it's better than nothing, but it still may not be equivalent. To a normal research course. And we're also discussing the Diploma of Mountain Medicine recertification programs currently throughout the world. Yeah, it too is probably necessary to refresh a skill level, but again, we don't know if any of these recertification courses can truly affect patient outcome, but we would like to think so. Look, here's my beef, and I'm not holding a bunch of stakes in my hands currently. One of the things that I have noted regarding wilderness medicine is a potentially slow creep of EMS authority into wilderness medicine. Yes, you heard it. Let me repeat it. One of the things that I've noted regarding wilderness medicine 
is a potentially slow creep of EMS authority into wilderness medicine. Well, what does that mean? Well, look, first of all, we just finished a match program for our wilderness medicine fellowships, and I got to be interested in seeing, well, what are the EMS programs doing? Because we have a particularly strong EMS fellowship program here at the University of New Mexico. And if you look and let your eyes do the browsing on the internet, you'll find some very interesting things. Maybe I shouldn't call it the internet. Maybe it should be called the metaverse. But you'll see, for instance, what wilderness medicine fellowships offer for a future career. For those of you unfamiliar with an actual wilderness medicine fellowship, it's a supplementary one-year educational and often experiential training for physicians who completed usually an emergency medicine or family medicine residency. Don't worry, they're real doctors. They're not practicing. And there are actually some burgeoning PA programs as well for wilderness medicine. Perhaps as you peruse the internet, you might think to self-self, I think that a graduating fellow has amazing job opportunities. Well, that is very true. At any rate, yeah, there is a promise of a dream job in wilderness medicine, certainly. Becoming a medical director for a national park or for a search and rescue team is often advertised as a big perk among some wilderness medicine fellowships, and rightly so, because they do give you that opportunity. On the other hand, listen, many EMS fellowships also advertise these same medical directorships for national parks or search and rescue teams. Do I sense a little competitiveness for a small amount of resources that are available? Hmm. Well, call me wrong, but you can look at the National Association for EMS Physicians website, and you'll see how many EMS fellowship advertise that you could become a medical director or assistant medical director by taking our fellowship. And these are great promises, and that is something that we actually have here at the University of New Mexico. And if you look at some search and rescue organizations, they will also have a, quote, Fellow of the Academy of Emergency Medical Services, end quote, or the title FAEMS Board Certified Emergency Physician as a medical director for some of these clinical opportunities. So that means that to obtain an FAEMS, that is, to become a fellow of the Academy of Emergency Medical Services, to be that kind of person means that one must first complete a one-year EMS fellowship. And this is for basically emergency medicine residency graduates. So this potentially eliminates someone who opted to spend an extra year solely in a wilderness medicine fellowship. Sure, why not spend two years in two fellowships? Of course, it might also leave out our other physician friends listening to this or not listening to this who are solely wilderness medicine-based, a.k.a. non-EMS fellowship-trained medical directors who are likely potentially more qualified in many ways than some of these newbie EMS graduates, but they're banished because, first of all, they are in another specialty, not EMS subspecialty, but another specialty outside of emergency medicine, precluding them from even considering becoming an FAEMS. You see what I mean? Thus, they're not, first of all, eligible for a fellowship. Now, perhaps the wilderness medicine-only individual would be eligible, but would have to work for one year for a very decreased salary to have their initials with the title FAEMS behind the last name, and then pay a yearly fee and take another continuous recertification test every year. And so another interesting question is, is this some taste of the merit badge mentality that those of us who have been board certified emergency physicians oppose? We, in the early years of emergency medicine, 
had to take BLS, ACLS, ATLS, and you name it to be able to work at a certain establishment. And that's still a requirement for some institutions, especially out in the community. And then you'd have to recertify and pay cash every two to five years to carry one of these special cards, which were really not meant for a board-certified emergency physician. So the question to ponder is, will wilderness medicine be absorbed by an overarching new subspecialty? Furthermore, this could leave out many of our wilderness medicine friends specialists, including our current president of the WMS, Dr. Jamie Lieberman. He's out of the picture, so to speak. Why? Well, first of all, he's not an emergency physician, but rather a board-certified skilled anesthesiologist with a substantial amount of wilderness medicine experience and wilderness medicine leadership. It's hard to predict the future, but I could easily envision the Wilderness Medical Society standing up for those of us who are not board certified in EMS, who do not have another group of initials, F-A-E-M-S, behind our names, potentially coming head-to-head with the National Association of EMS Physicians. This is just my opinion and not that of the WMS. As a former EMS physician, medical director, who decided not to take a subspecialty board examination, I still have the breadth and the depth of knowledge necessary to still be a medical director, but I decided not to take a certification test, which at the time was fairly poorly written, according to several, several, several sources. And so I would have had to have shelled out a pretty small, nice fortune to be able to take a test, which may not have been written well. But fortunately, however, I'm told that the exam is much more well-written. So that's a good thing. But let me tell you something else. As an instructor for many wilderness medicine programs, I'll tell you that not all EMS physicians do well in wilderness settings. That's all all I'm going to say about that. This is not an affront to any of you that have a subspecialty in EMS. No, we need you guys. But I guess quite simply, we just don't have enough data to exclude either party. Wilderness EMS needs both groups. Now, I'm going to take on the worst case scenario. Suppose many search and rescue opportunities are absorbed by EMS in the future, at least in the United States. As a physician, you probably can still become involved in a search and rescue group. You just will have limited leadership opportunities, that is to say, a medical directorship. Other entities, such as the National Ski Patrol or certain ski patrol institutions, that may be a different flavor, and I'm not going to cover that here right now. But I believe that there's still going to be many opportunities in wilderness medicine. Yeah, perhaps ski patrolling. And this is even if some opportunities become absorbed or lost to EMS. Now, ski patrolling might become absorbed in EMS, but there's still potential in creating research opportunities, global health programs, working with disaster medicine teams, expedition medicine in the high mountains or in the oceans. At least in the U.S., these are some of the good prospects that wilderness medicine alone offers. The domestic clinical experience could potentially be curtailed without having undergone an EMS fellowship program. Am I being reasonable in this concern? Well, I think it's something to ponder, but folks, I'd be very interested in your feedback because this would make for some very interesting future discussions. Of course, we definitely don't know the implications for an advanced practice practitioner. We haven't even talked about you guys. We don't know what's going to happen to you as a nurse involved in wilderness medicine without EMS experience, but you're likely not going to become eligible to become a medical director, which, okay, with the new subspecialty of EMS, Are you going to be required to have some sort of a certification? Well, you know, we really don't know, and I definitely don't have a lot of information to discuss what the new subspecialty would do for 
an advanced practice practitioner or nurse or any other individual who isn't a physician or an emergency medicine physician. Wow. Now that's a whole other topic. Thank you for listening to this diatribe. We would welcome some of your opinions because this could potentially shape the policy within our society and wilderness medicine in general. If any of you are outside of the United States, well, this is a likely problem limited to this country. But if any of you are interested, I could definitely later touch on the collaboration of EMS and wilderness medicine or mountain medicine providers on other parts of the world. So with that, good luck with what I said. I'm expecting the tomatoes to start flying. Thanks for listening to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. This is a production of Elsevier 2021. Be sure to fill out the CME questions. Be safe, be educated, and don't let the bed bugs bite. Contact us for further questions. Otherwise, see you next year.